Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Kenneth Branagh's 1993 film of Much Ado About Nothing. This star-studded Shakespeare adaptation is an absurd romantic comedy, focusing on two couples, the young and naive Claudio and Hero and the more cynical and argumentative Beatrice and Benedict. Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson star in the latter two roles among an ensemble cast, including Kate Beckinsale, Denzel Washington, Keanu Reeves, and Robert Sean Leonard. Uh, and this is a Patreon request from Hunter. Thank you very much, Hunter, for requesting this movie, which we both enjoyed a great deal. Um, like so many people, we saw this in high school because it's a peak high school English class film. Um, and it was just delightful to revisit. It's a it's a very kind of 90s movie. Um, it's going to be great to talk about this cast because it's full of famous people kind of at peak hotness in this very enjoyable uh, kind of ensemble comedy. Yeah, I love this movie. I've seen it several times. I didn't see it in class in high school because I didn't read this play in the Shakespeare class I took in high school. I did take a full-on Shakespeare class in high school and my friends and I were all obsessed with Shakespeare because we were nerds but I must have like sought it out because I was into Shakespeare for that reason so I had a probably slightly purer experience of just being like I love this because I have a crush on Robert Sean Leonard and I love Shakespeare and I'm you know 17 or whatever and I definitely seen it since then but I hadn't seen it in quite some time and um I just finished rewatching it and it was a really great experience watching it again because I remembered it pretty well I mean I studied this play in college it's not like it was a surprise to me I've seen multiple versions of it over the years but part of the genius of Shakespeare is that these things kind of get deeper and richer the more times you watch them and as you get older and there were definitely things about it that struck me in new ways this time and the film itself I was just like oh this is a great movie yeah and there's like there's some Shakespeare plays where I really really relish a weird interpretation like I fucking love a weird modern whatever the fuck you want to do either film or stage interpretation particularly of the tragedies but with this play specifically you just have to make the characters engaging and likable or in this case engaging and hateable Um, a lot of them are just absolute monsters and that's part of the charm of the play (laughs) yes the basic setup of this play, which you've sort of begun to uh, lay out, is that there are kind of two plot lines and the sort of two romances, right? One of which is between Beatrice and Benedict characters who are played here by Branagh and Thompson, who functionally on a plot level contribute nothing. Like, they don't do anything to, like, make anything happen. They just have their kind of romance to the side. And they're definitely the more compelling component of the story. Yeah, because it's it's extremely hard to remember that they are, technically speaking, the subplot, as uh, my friend Grace yes. pointed out when we watched it. And I was like, they're not the subplot, they're the main characters. It's like, no, the main plot is the two more boring young people. <laughs> yeah, and they have this whole drama where Hero, the young woman, gets accused of you know, sleeping with this other guy before they get married. And that's obviously completely scandalous and unacceptable. And then they wind up like staging her death to make her fiance feel bad. There's lots of like charades going on in this play, which we'll discuss. But um, I always remember feeling like the two parts were kind of 
not connected enough, right? And, like, I loved the stuff with Beatrice and Benedict so much that I was willing to slightly forgive the other parts of the play that I didn't like very much. And watching it this time, I was like, oh, no. Shakespeare actually did know what he was doing. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) Um, And I felt like the whole thing... Like, I still don't necessarily like all the characters in that other part of the play. Like, the young guy... Claudio, played by Claudio Robert John Leonard, is, a, is <laughs> oh, he sucks. But I think a lot of the point of the play is about these kind of, like, systems of masculinity and how men behave, and that both halves are really informing each other in an interesting way that I don't know that I had totally appreciated I mean, I was when loving I this when I was watching just the first quarter of the film is just men gossiping, like, solidly gossiping and talking about their feelings and talking about their love lives, which is not a common theme in modern cinema. It's just like, this is terribly fun. <laughs> Well, Denzel Washington plays Don Pedro, who's, like, the guy in charge. I don't know exactly what, like, aristocratic system is happening here, but, like, he's not a king, but he's he's essentially the king he's the Don. play, right? Yeah. And, um, I mean, they're in Italy, obviously. You know, Shakespeare loves Italy yeah. in it's, quotes. It's filmed, it's they've like... got a wonderful interpretation of Italy in this film, in that, like, it's in a villa. Like, they filmed it in, in Italy. I kind of envision this as the historical drama version of Mamma Mia!, where it's just like a bunch of yes. actors are hanging out, getting a tan, you know, probably drinking and hanging out in this cool villa. And they're wearing like kind of historical costumes. And I say historical in that the concept is just that they're kind of from history. <laughs> it's like, it's great. It's just the same as when you're like working for a theater company, they pick stuff out of storage and it's like, here's some uniforms and here's some like bodices. <laughs> the men are all wearing these kind of you know, like Napoleonic era <laughs> uniforms, which are great. And the women are essentially wearing underwear. Yeah, like, that's <laughs> they're wearing basically... they're wearing kind of a like white white underdresses and bodices, and there's just a lot of bosoms happening. And it's like, you know what, Kenneth Branagh, I'll allow it. <laughs> it's fine. I have no complaints. But the Denzel Washington character, like his whole personality, is essentially that he just loves drama <laughs> and loves to mess with people, and that's all he does. That's but, like, his in whole a cute thing. Way. In a cute way. <laughs> I mean, when he finds out that Claudio is interested in Hero, these are the young, the young lovers, he's like, okay, what we're going to do is, instead of you just telling her this directly, I'm going to woo her for you on your behalf. And that, I mean, it's like, dude, (laughs) why? It's also like, she's so young. She's such a, this is Kate Beckinsale's first movie. And I, I literally didn't recognize her. Obviously, once I knew it was her, I knew it was her. But she looks so young. She was a university student. I think she was about 19 or something at the time. And it's just like, Kate. So even more, you're just like, fuck off, Don Pedro. Stop messing around. <laughs> and then it's his idea to like set up Benedict and Beatrice. Yeah. There's a lot of like masquerading yeah. happening. I mean, the concept with Ben, Dick and Beatrix, I assume that the vast majority of listeners will be familiar, um, possibly because they've watched the David Tennant, Catherine Tate version, which is like the iconic version of our generation. But, um, you know, there are two people who hate each other and don't want to get married. And the prank is that each of them is encouraged to overhear a fake conversation where they are led to believe the other person is passionately in love with them. And in doing so, they fall in love. So yes, <laughs> and there's, I mean, it's implied she has one little speech where, yeah. like, they have a past. They've obviously been involved together, like previously, and it didn't work out. And so 
it's not that hard to get them to do this. And I feel like in all the versions I've seen, she is the more kind of, she's the more sympathetic of the two. He's this sort of buffoon and she's this harpy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and Emma Thompson in this movie is just sublime. She's so charismatic in everything, but like, gosh. (laughs) All the close-ups on her face when she's delivering her dialogue, you just get so much of what's going on in her head. Obviously, she's being sort of difficult and argumentative, but it never feels like she's being overly unreasonable or silly, which is also the text of the play, but like she delivers it in a way that feels very grounded. And Kenneth Branagh, meanwhile, is just playing a full idiot, which is I mean, he's directed himself to be this way. It's completely deliberate, but it's very, very funny. And that's what the character is on the page, too. Like, he's just this sort of preening buffoon. And um, I think it could be very easy for that character to seem so buffoonish that you don't understand why they like each other or why they're appealing as a romantic couple. But the repartee is so good that you're just like, well, obviously these guys have to be together. Like, you know, sure. But crucially, I think a lot of what Shakespeare is doing in this play is kind of like interrogating male behavior. Like the big thing that sort of happens to Benedict that I think is really important is that once he, you know, admits to himself that he's fallen in love with Beatrice, he turns into a much more mature and sympathetic person Right? Like, they have this big argument over all the stuff that's happening with the other couple. And she explains to him how upset she is about this, specifically about Claudio mistreating Hero, who was her cousin. And he asks her, do you really think that he, like, behaved badly? I don't, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But he, like, directly asks her that question. And she says yes. And he actually believes her. And I was like, oh my goodness. Like, What is happening? Because that felt like such a kind of bold thing to be happening in a story like this, right? Like for the woman to actually express why she thinks that another man has behaved like a shit. And for the man who likes her to be like, yes, I believe that you are correct. Right? And I think that that kind of like growth in terms of like male emotional behavior is a lot of what is happening in the story in an interesting way. And other men behave terribly (laughs) and don't have that level of like expansion of their minds. And that's why the two of them wind up together because they're the best ones is my sort of thesis of this play. Shall we talk about Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson? As we, I think, briefly teased at the end of last week's episode, our kind of top 20 movies of 2020. There was a lot of business going on at this time with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, who were famously married and also split up as the result of an affair that Mr. Branagh had with Helena Bonham Carter while they were filming a movie together. Very, very scandalous. But um, I actually didn't fully realise until I was kind of looking into the background of this movie how young he was at the time. Because like he's not very kind of youthful in the movie and he's never really looked young. He's always had sort of a middle-aged vibe. But he was 32 when he directed this. He was 28 when he directed Henry V, which was like his really big breakout role. And like by that point, he was already obviously a very established theatre actor. And like he'd been in a bunch of stuff in Britain. These were like, they were like huge stars. And the vibe of this movie was like, oh, we're we're bringing Shakespeare to the people. And it's it's all very 
relatable and fun and nothing like your stuffy grandfather's Shakespeare, which I feel like is a conversation that just happens like perennially throughout our entire lives. But it is kind of interesting to read some coverage from like 1993 and the way this is discussed and the way that he discusses it and being like, I don't want this to be all stiff because that's how I remember Shakespeare in school. Whereas like we watch this now and we're like, yeah, it's a very, very enjoyable, extremely accessible, but ultimately not very unconventional movie because <laughs> things have, have evolved a little. But um, yeah, like, do you want to talk about kind of Kenneth Branagh as this big Shakespearean filmmaker and how he's sort of compared to Olivier? Yeah. I mean, I think both of them have really, really fascinating and slightly disappointing careers in different ways. But I Branagh... mean, Branagh is more disappointing and oh, just God knows. Yes. <laughs> Absolute yes. terrible movies he's making now. <laughs> I mean, what I find interesting about both of them is that I was looking at their Wikipedias, just like the list of movies that they made, right? And it's fascinating the degree to which both of them peaked in the period in which they were married. And I'm not even like hypothesizing that it particularly had anything to do with the marriage because the movies that she made that were so great, it's like this and then a number of things that he had nothing to do with. Yeah. So like Sense and Sensibility, which she also wrote and won the Oscar for. And she was doing like Howard- a lot of amazing comedy as well earlier, earlier in her career. Like he was coming up doing kind of uh, dramatic theater work and she was doing kind of sketch comedy to like yeah. a very prestigious degree yeah but her big like dramatic breakout was um the merchant ivory film howard's end a couple years before this she also did their film remains of the day so like these sort of period adaptations of like great works of literature all four of the movies that i just listed are fall into that category and he's not involved in three of four of those films. So I'm not saying it's like, you know, they broke up and then the spark was gone. It's just that like the weirdness of all of this just happens to be that this was the peak of their careers because he starts with Henry V in 1989, which she, that was her first screen role actually, which I had forgotten. I saw that movie in college when I read that play for class and I remember not being particularly impressed with it, but I saw it 10 years ago. So maybe my opinion would change if I watched it again, but it was certainly a huge, huge deal at the time because it was shot more like a war movie in a like modern sense than as a Shakespeare adaptation. And I think that felt very groundbreaking to people in the eighties. Then he makes a movie with her called dead again, which is the like big Hollywood breakout, which I mean, I don't even know how to describe the plot of this weird vibes. This movie, I've not seen it, but like I'm aware of this film and it has powerfully weird vibes. (laughs) My friends and I tried to watch it in college and we literally were just like, what the fuck is happening? And then we gave up to watch something else. And then there's a movie called Peter's Friend. I don't know anything about. It's a movie with like a bunch of really famous British actors getting together to hang out in a house. Yeah. And then Much to Do About Nothing in 93, which to, I mean, I have not seen the vast majority of his films, but it seems pretty clear that this is the peak of his career as a director. But he does Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in 94, which is sort of considered a like fascinating disaster. Robert De Niro plays um, the monster in that. There's a great quote on Wikipedia from the screenwriter of like the original screenwriter of that movie, who apparently called the film the best script I ever wrote and the worst movie I've ever seen. So that's quite (laughs) damning. And then in 96 does Hamlet, which I've never watched and I think probably has not aged great because it's like four hours long and I think a bit stodgy, but certainly was well respected 
and like a big deal at the time because he adapted the whole of Hamlet, right? Whereas most Shakespeare adaptations have to cut a bunch of stuff and especially Hamlet because it's so long and he was just like, no, I'm doing the whole fucking thing and you can't stop me. And so then they break up and it's four years until he makes another movie, having been making a movie every year for yeah. the past six years. And it's a flop. It's a flop adaptation of Love's Labour's Lost and then it's downhill. Like, it's weird, right? Because he's extremely prolific. He's clearly also a very desirable director. Like, he knows how to do his job and he's, like, a respectable name. But, like, you look at the movies he's made over the past ten years and the best movie on that list is Thor. Marvel's Thor. Which, perfectly enjoyable blockbuster with very good casting. But then it's, like, fucking Jack Ryan. Like, Murder in the Orient Express, which is criminal. And I had actually forgotten this, but he directed last year's Artemis Fowl movie, which I'm sure I would imagine perhaps 1% of our listeners have watched. Um, We are of the generation of people who grew up with Artemis Fowl. I loved those books when I was about 11. That movie, heinous, incompetent, disastrous, absolute fiasco at every level. God. (laughs) Do you know about the film All Is True? Uh, no. From 2018, directed by Kenneth Branagh, in which he stars as William Shakespeare. Mistakes have (laughs) been made. Yeah. I mean, he also, in 1995, I was just thinking, like, why is this showing up? And it's because he didn't direct it. He starred as Iago in an adaptation of Othello that he didn't direct. He clearly, he was like the Shakespeare guy in the 90s, right? And Much Ado About Nothing made $36 million, which isn't very much, but it was made on a budget of $11 million, and 36 in the 90s is not, like, that's a decent amount of money. And then obviously was, like, shown in classrooms all over the place, as were a number of these other films. So he had sort of built a cottage industry for himself that was highly respectable, even if it wasn't like he was making these huge blockbusters. And then he's clearly maintained the interest in Shakespeare, but it has just collapsed. Like, he just has become this sort of director for hire, which is totally fine. Like, I think the first Thor is really, really good, and I think he does a good job directing it. And obviously, the big line on that movie when it came out was that it's so Shakespearean, and it's sort of, like, interpersonal dynamics. I'm like, like, so of course they got... I mean, I actually do think that part of the reason that he works as the director of that movie is that he actually understands the emotional like components of what's going on, right? I mean, it must just be that he he wants the money, like he likes the money, but it's just yeah. baffling to me that he makes films that are so absolutely heinously bad now. Because for me as like someone as a millennial, right? I was not around for the period when he was like young and cool. I was not around for the period where he was like this hugely respected Shakespeare director. I was around for the period where he is like an established British actor figure. He's part of this kind of generation of lovies along with like Emma Thompson and Stephen Fry and stuff. And he kind of predominantly was kind of known for prestige drama TV roles in the mid 2000s. And like, obviously he's been working like in such a wide variety of stuff, but I mean, as a director, it's kind of astounding both the variety of the films he's made and also like how much worse, as Morgan says, they rapidly become made once you reach the 2000s. (laughs) Well, there's just, I I really feel like the Olivier comparisons, which he completely courted and was obviously 
like that was clearly on his mind, right? Like he wanted to be the next Laurence Olivier and indeed played Laurence Olivier in the 2011 film My Week with Marilyn about... I mean, that is very flattering towards Kenneth's looks, if I may say so. (laughs) I concur. Like, Laurence Olivier would eat that man for breakfast, right? Like, that's just not gonna... But he clearly is talented as a director, and I think he's a good actor, too, in a particular way. Like, I think he's great in this movie because it plays to his skill set. I mean, I do find it interesting that, like, he is known for playing quite a lot of buffoon characters and not taking himself so seriously, which is kind of the opposite vibe from what you usually expect when you see someone with this kind of career. Yes. I mean, clearly he does take himself seriously. (laughs) It must have just been like, obviously I don't have insight into his, you know, personal psychology or whatever, but like it was obviously like he just didn't have the capacity artistically to pull off the thing he wanted to pull off. And it strikes me that it you can see the collapse happen where he just gives up. And instead of continuing to attempt to make all... Because he wanted to do all of them, as I recall. Oof. And instead he's doing Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, I mean, which is do not, not forget his starring role in Tenet. <laughs> I actually think he's... I mean, he's one of the better things about Tenet, in my opinion. So... Yeah. <laughs> damning with faint praise. But the amount of attention that must have been heaped upon him. I mean, I found this amazing article from 1993, which oh. I'm just going to read the first paragraph Please of. Please quote it. Because yeah. it is it's incredible. It's kind of just giving you like some insight into what he was viewed as at the time. Because we all just now think of him as like either the guy who plays Professor Lockhart in Harry Potter or some middle-aged Shakespeare guy. But okay, so 93... When Kenneth Branagh, the young lion of British acting, walks into a room, the molecules are hardly disturbed. He's no power storm, this compact 32-year-old. Not the press's raging wonderkind, wanting to one-up Sir Laurence Olivier and Orson Welles before noon. With carroty brows, true blue eyes, and paper-thin lips, Branagh is the young whippersnapper as ordinary bloke, whose affectation for D.H. Lawrence recalls his own working-class Belfast youth. You won't hear much roaring from this young lion. <laughs> I mean, it goes on. It goes on in that vein for about 15 paragraphs. (laughs) So, I mean, my God, like, it's too much. I also love when, like, this style of journalism sort of, um, I guess, sort of, like, Vogue profile slash Telegraph profile journalism has to physically describe someone who is just completely average looking. Because there is nothing remarkable about Kenneth Branagh's face, body, mannerisms, or voice. He is just a man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's like you have to try and like describe something it's like no he just came out of the box as a man <laughs> oh dear oh dear yeah but uh emma thompson yes. on the other hand has done has acted in many many films most of which have completely just vanished i found this very interesting because like i also did a little wikipedia look at her extremely prolific career and obviously there are a lot of really famous the roles that we know her from and i think virtually everyone feels very warmly towards her because she is just incredibly charismatic and clever and funny and delightful and the characters she plays are often just extraordinarily likable but like when you look at kind of obviously like a lot of those are just sort of middling movies or sort of feel good comedies and stuff. Obviously, Sense and Sensibility, iconic, and a couple of other roles. But like 
her Wikipedia page is full of films where it's like, oh, she achieved like an Emmy award for this film and was critically acclaimed. And people said it was like the best performance of her career. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, I've literally never heard of this. So, you know. She's a mystery to me because she obviously is brilliant. She's brilliant and chill. She's very chill. Yeah, I mean, she clearly just doesn't care in terms of like wanting to be a famous person wanting the sort of acclaim for things like she's not interested which I completely respect but she clearly is brilliant I mean that adaptation of Sense Sensibility is one of the best adaptations of a book I've ever seen it's so I mean it's just it's a great screenplay period but it's also such a smart re-envisioning of that novel but most of the movies she has been in certainly since like we have been of the age to be paying attention to like new films are not good. <laughs> like she'll take a sort of supporting role in something where you're just like, why are you doing this? And yeah, I like think she kind of just- Yeah, Black International, like why? It's it's really odd. And I she clearly must just sort of like doing like a week or two of work on something or like have relationships with people who are making these sort of various films. It's most almost entirely supporting- Parts. She occasionally will do a lead in something, but um, it's quite odd. She has been extremely, extremely unequivocal about sort of Hollywood issues. She dropped out of a animated film a couple years ago when the studio hired John Lasseter, the disgraced ex-Pixar person who got in a Me Too, you know, mess. Famed um, creep. Yes, because... Like, this other studio hired him, and she had already been, you know, on board this movie to do a voice, and she dropped out of it and wrote a public letter basically explaining that this was not acceptable. So she obviously has, like, principles in a way that is unusual and that I also really appreciate. But, um, yeah, her career is just a bit odd. Uh, I love her, obviously. I mean, everyone loves Emma Thompson. But you kind of, like, I'm always kind of wishing for, like, a movie like those few really great ones that she did in the 90s again, and I... And I don't expect that that's going to happen anytime yeah. soon. And everyone's always so exciting, excited when there's like a legit Emma Thompson movie, not just her being in something. Everyone was like, oh, Late Night, she's in Late Night. And it's like, people watch Late Night and were like, okay, this film is just nothing. Like, I haven't personally seen it, but it just kind of I, was, you know. I saw it, she's wonderful in it, and the movie is not good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's the sort of... What, I mean, she's always good, right? Like, she is always good in everything. It's not like she's ever giving a bad performance. It's the movies around her tend to be not great. And that was one of the, to bring it back to the movie we are actually discussing on this episode, that was one of the great pleasures of this film is that she is such an incredible actress and obviously, like, it doesn't get any better than Shakespeare, right? But the direction of the movie, I think, is also really, really smart and effective. To give Brown some credit, I think he does a really good job at mostly being not super flashy and then the moments where he does allow himself to get kind of flashy it feels appropriate and effective the moment right at the beginning where all the men get a little slow-mo shot where they (laughs) i was like this is i I just the intro to this movie is tremendous you have like emma thompson doing some you know shakespearean recitation and then you just have like basically an anime intro where you have the men and the women lining up in formation and walking each other and i'm like wow this is i feel fully i'm engaged i'm in the right zone and then they just have the credit sequences fully naked people which i don't recall from schools i think schools must edit out the nude showering uh, introductory sequence. <laughs> yes. 
I mean, this is an unbelievably horny movie. Oh, incredibly, we, incredibly we horny. should say. <laughs> Which I also feel is not, like, a particularly Branagh-esque vibe. Certainly looking at his list of other things, that doesn't seem like a strong component of his oeuvre. But uh, this movie, extremely, extremely horny. Yeah. And that's part of what makes the movie so fun, I think, is that sometimes the perception, I think, that people don't know that much about Shakespeare have is that it's sort of old and fusty and whatever. And of course, that is not what Shakespeare is like. Shakespeare was very, very body and had lots of dirty jokes. And the comedies in particular, like they're romantic comedies. That's where the form comes from, yeah. right? And they're extremely silly. I yes. was loving Michael Keaton in this film because I was just like, because of my encyclopedic Batman knowledge, I was just watching this being like, this was one calendar year after Batman Returns. <laughs> like, <laughs> fucking, after it's like one of his more subdued roles. And obviously we know that Michael Keaton is quite a versatile actor and I love him. But like, it was just, he was just going full Beetlejuice and he had this horrible hair. And I was like, I just love that this man has embraced not being a leading man because he is hideous and disgusting in this movie and playing just like a comedy toad. <laughs> Well, also, I feel like almost everyone is using their own accent. Yeah. Except for him. A couple of the Americans might be doing an English accent. I wasn't totally paying attention. I think they're but, all just American. And I think that was something is, I think that was something Brana was going for intentionally. Yeah. He, on the other hand, is not doing that. I don't know exactly what he's doing, but um it is Definitely not the way he normally sounds, uh, <laughs> which was quite funny. I think there's a lot more of Dogberry and company, which is the character he plays in the play. And I think Branna wisely was like, let's minimize this. I mean, bit. any Shakespeare play where there's just like a bunch of rude mechanicals, it, it's just, it yes. rarely works if you're going for like a modern film. It works on stage because you can have people sort of, you know, jumping around like jesters. But like in a movie, you can't just be like, oh, no, we're going to have like 10 minutes with the comedy peasants. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I didn't love all that stuff in this film, even though I do love Michael Keaton. But I think it is executed about as well as it's yeah, going yeah. to be. I'm not watching this movie for Michael Keaton. <laughs> yeah. It is quite funny because he really does look horrible and everyone else is like god or goddess of like just unbelievable hotness. Like <laughs> everyone in this movie is just like at the peak. Except I saw Kate some like into, I saw some review from the 90s that was talking about like oh Emma Thompson's good enough that she can act even through the pancake makeup and I'm like no she's glowing. <laughs> she's so beautiful. I did of course notice that she looks like a human woman yeah. like her face moves and has lines which would not be the case today but she's like totally radiantly gorgeous everyone is so blow-dried in this movie the, the volume of blow-dried hair it was iconic <laughs> <laughs> the men the women everyone as you said Branna is like basically a normal looking man but like he makes himself look about it you know pretty good he's not unattractive yeah, i mean just, it's fine i accept it's fine it. it's fine <laughs> denzel washington incredibly hot in this movie just like yeah i think very, this is the this is like looking. the only hot denzel era movie i've seen because most of the ones i've seen are like yeah. slightly older where he's like hot but like for moms yes exactly whereas this is not this is bad. the prime um, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and his whole role is just being like you know a sexy troublemaker who's messing <laughs> with everyone's <laughs> life so like and as I said,
said, Robert Sean Leonard has a is just playing a monster in this movie. But I had seen Dead Poet Society around this time, and you know, as a teenage teenager, it was bad. I had such a crush on him at that sort of period specifically because I was also watching House at this time, and that he was too old in House. That was not doing. I it mean, for me. his appearance is positively unholy because he just looks like this just encapsulation of that sort of floppy haired dimply 90s aesthetic and he like came out with this incredibly sensitive role in dead poet society and i think somewhat miraculously does not have like weird vibes and just generally just seems like a normal middle-aged man which is very rare in that kind of scenario when you're like a young heartthrob situation. Yes. And this is obviously him at peak heartthrob, but it's just a really funny role because it's actually sort of almost preceding his role in House where kind of the whole point of that character is he looks, by that point, you know, he's like he's good looking, but he's sort of like an average man who's quite likable, but his actual personality is he's secretly a shit stain who, you know, is living half of his meanness out through his best friend, his asshole. But in this movie, it's like, oh, you think he's like this sweet, innocent boy, but actually toxic masculinity has made him into a complete psychopath. <laughs> yes. Well, let's talk about all the men in this film, which I referenced earlier, but really does bear a more extended discussion. Part of it is just the conventions of the storytelling. Yeah. Because Shakespeare has to come up with, you know, lies that people tell each other to come up with plot yeah. I mean, yeah, no, happen, no right? plot that happens in any of Shakespeare's comedies is something that a real person would execute in real life. <laughs> no, obviously. I mean, Twelfth Night, which is the other comedy that I know really well, is similarly just like people pretending <laughs> to be other people. And like, that's his big thing, right? But if you think about it for like five seconds, every man in this film is just an insane monster. <laughs> film slash play, I should say. Particularly Leonardo, who is Hero's father and Beatrice's uncle. Just absolutely a psycho. 100%. She gets accused, Hero gets accused of um, sleeping with this guy. And it's all a scheme that's been set up by It's been staged Don by Pedro's Keanu Reeves. Brother. Yeah. Keanu Reeves, who is... Very bad in this film, I must say. You told me when we, before we did this, you were like, oh, I'm watching the Keanu Reeves Must Do About Nothing, or you tweeted it or something. And I was like, Gavia, this is absurd. Like, it's the only, no, it's no. the only Much Do About Nothing with Keanu Reeves in it. And I mean, he you're does not his wrong. Best. I love him, but oh, this is around the Dracula period. It's about the same time. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he's he's miscast in this movie, but I find him delightful. I The other day I watched the first Keanu Reeves movie I've ever seen where I was like, this is shocking. It was the movie Johnny Mnemonic, which is a cyberpunk film set in 2021. So I'm going to like, okay, I'll watch this. And it was like, very bleak. You know, there's people writing, there's plagues and everything. Very realistic. But his role is so robotic. I was like, what is happening? And this was after he had done like My Own Private Idaho and stuff. So purely direction that must be. Yes. I mean, My Own Private Idaho, he's doing a ton of Shakespeare and he's good in that. It's still, he's still doing Keanu, you know, yeah. but it's set in the current Yeah. Day. Basically, putting him in a historical film is a mistake. It feels wrong. He's not in this movie very much, but he's the sort of agent of evil who's conniving and scheming and just, he has no motivation. It's literally yeah, he's just, just, he's he just, there. He shows up, the text explains that he's bad and wants to cause problems and there is no further explanation and it's like all right i will take it 
sure, fine. So they all, all the men immediately believe that Hero is bad. As they would. Because, yeah. I mean, Claudio also, like, (laughs) Keanu tells Claudio earlier, or one of his associates tells him earlier, that, like, Don Pedro is actually wooing him for herself, himself, and... With no evidence, he's just immediately like, my life is ruined. I can't believe it. I was such a fool. She's going to marry him now. And I was just like, so just, can you, can someone just tell you any fact? And you could just be like, fuck. And also it's like, he looks about 25. So he doesn't really have the excuse of being a teenager or something. It's like, you're an adult. (laughs) Yeah. But they all see this like woman with dark hair sleeping with some man in the window and are like, oh my God, obviously it's her. And it is not. It is Imelda Staunton, who I don't think actually has any dialogue in this movie, but does appear. But uh, all the men immediately are just like, well, clearly she was just, this is totally, this is totally true. And, um, you know, she's a whore basically and uh, fuck her. So they have the wedding and then Claudio is like, yeah, um, I'm not going to marry you. You suck. And then her father s- slaps her in the face. It is very unpleasant. And they manage to calm him down and be like, no, this isn't true. And then he proceeds to like go on this whole thing. I mean, the priest comes up with the idea to stage her death. Again, everyone in this movie. <laughs> Fully <like> bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> so they stage her death. They eventually find out that you know, this was a con. And instead of being like, oh, okay, that's fine. Her dad's like, yeah, she's dead. It's so sad. You have to marry my niece now. We're going to stage a whole wedding again. And Claudio's like, I'm so sad. It's so, this is so terrible. If there's one thing I love, it's the tradition of wearing a veil at your wedding, which can lead to so many exciting mistaken identities when you have a wedding with the wrong slash right person under the veil. And I really feel like anyone who gets married under a veil should really feel quite stressed about that in the walk up the aisle. <laughs> yeah. It's like, who is it under there? But the fact that he's, instead of just resolving the issue, is like, we're going to keep this up until you're literally at the altar. Again, obviously just to cause drama. But if you think about it for five seconds, is just deranged. It's so nuts. But all the men in this movie behave this way. I was talking to my brother about this and I was sort of like, you know, a great way to interpret this movie would be that rather than taking place in historical fantasy Italy, it's actually a creative retreat for a bunch of historical LARPers, like a Ren Faire troupe, and that <laughs> explains why they're all bonkers. Yes. I mean, what I think is so effective about this, watching this as a slightly older person, I think the last time I saw this, I must have been 22 or 23, is that this is clearly due partially to the play and partially to the fact that I think this is a really well executed version of the play is I think it's really critiquing all of these men flipping out immediately about the fact that she's obviously ruined. It's all over. Right. And she does eventually wind up marrying the same shitty guy, but like Don Pedro in particular, the Denzel Washington character is really fun and sympathetic for like the first half of the movie when he's just sort of messing with people. I mean, that's a bit odd, but he's not presented as like a malevolent figure at all. And he clearly kind of has a crush a little bit on Beatrice, which you understand because she's very appealing, but she says no to him. And 
he seems like a kind of nice appealing man, but he is completely sucked in to this immediately, right? And that feels significant to me that like the male authority figure whom you have previously perceived as like a noble entity in a spiritual sense, not obviously he is literally nobility, but like he seems like he has good intentions is not any better than any of these other assholes because, you know, society. And they all kind of have to learn this lesson, but because of the rules of the genre, like everyone has to get married at the end, right? And also realistically speaking, like women just have to put up with the same I bullshit mean, all the time. Hero so. just basically doesn't talk really. I mean, she has minimal dialogue, but once you get to the point where she has to agree to marry him at the end, it's like, oh, I love you. And there's like no kind of, well, in like a good contemporary drama, you would have like, he would, you know, in some way have to apologize and she would at some point have to accept him. But it's like, no, no, <laughs> it is admittedly 500 years old. and We will just accept that and move on. <laughs> but also like, I'm much more familiar with the Shakespearean tragedies than the comedies. Like I studied most of them at school. I've seen them, a lot of them on stage. The comedies much less so. I know this one in Twelfth Night really well. I know Midsummer, but one of the other ones that I happen to know very well is uh, The Taming of the Shrew, which was only Shakespeare's second play, I believe, and uh, it's horrible. It's bad. Yeah, very bad. If you want to hear Morgan's expertise on that, listen to our episode on Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah, and there's this like desire among academics, which I have personally encountered, to turn that play into like a secret feminist text which i think is completely just that people don't want to believe that shakespeare could have written something so ugly and misogynistic right but i'm sorry he did it's it was a long time ago but this play is like 20 years after that or something it's sort of solidly in the middle of his career and i think is really interesting as a sort of side-by-side comparison. And again, like there are plenty of comedies of his that I don't know, including some written in between. But that play is similarly a setup of like the male and female romantic lead hate each other at the beginning and then wind up reconciled by the end. But you feel really disgusted by the way that that is set up. And in this, it feels really satisfying and isn't even the full sort of point of the plot like they get together kind of like halfway through almost the story and it just feels to me like he'd obviously thought about all of this stuff a lot more comprehensively than he had at the beginning of his career which makes sense because we all change as we get older right and yeah I just think there's a lot of sort of like complicated depth in this one in particular even if there are things about it that feel like frustrating, like the fact that Hero basically has no personality and in the end has to marry this completely awful man. But, uh, I mean, we should talk a bit just briefly about also the like way that this play in particular, but the Shakespearean comedies in general, affected culture. I mean, I feel like Beatrice and Benedict are just a legendary couple their dynamic the banter and stuff is so influential well i would love to know if there's some thing that predates them or shakespeare in general because again like taming of the shrew also does this it just does this in a way that feels gross to us now like i don't know that much about renaissance 
theater. I mean, I definitely don't know hardly anything, but like kind of argumentative husband and wife teams are a staple of comedy since time immemorial. So, well, right, but like what examples? I don't know any examples before him. Surely there's something. I just googled and Pulcinella from Commedia dell'arte would be kind of around. Yeah. So potentially that situation, but I think that's basically contemporaneous. So like the idea yeah. was around they probably have some source. If we have any academics in the audience, throw us a tweet or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm I genuinely love to know. Um and obviously Shakespeare's always drawing from other sources when yeah. he's writing these things, right? But then Shakespeare becomes the thing that everyone is watching or reading in the centuries that follow, right? Like, we're talking about this with virtually no knowledge of any other Renaissance playwrights because Shakespeare's the one that everybody reads and who gets adapted into films. But, like, Jane Austen obviously is so influenced directly or indirectly by this stuff. And then the screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s are hugely, hugely influenced by the Shakespeare plays, one of which we just talked about a couple weeks ago, The Philadelphia Story. A lot of those movies have some component of like masquerade or disguise in them that either the couple is sort of doing it together to sort of fool everyone else, or one of them is doing it to trick the other person. And there's this sort of like elaborate ruse going on. If I ever did a PhD in film, that would be the subject of my dissertation. But all of that comes from plays like Much Do About Nothing and Twelfth Night. And I think there are not nearly as many sort of interesting female characters in the tragedies. I mean, you get the occasional one, but not so much. But this is clearly where he allowed that to happen a bit more. And I think this play in particular of the ones that I'm familiar with is the sort of richest in that way like she's the best character in the play for sure and she gets to kind of articulate her position in a way that's really forceful which i think is really exciting and part of what makes the play so special and she gets to say that she'd eat a guy's heart in the marketplace which is an iconic line that resonates to this day (laughs) yes and as we keep saying like thompson is just she's just amazing she's both really funny but also like it feels like a serious performance in a lot of ways too. Is there anything else that we've we've missed that you want to talk about? I don't think so. I think just thanks, Hunter, for uh, inviting us to rewatch this movie. Just lovely we start to the year. I hope some people are watching along with us. It's truly such a joy. If anyone is still listening who for some reason is not super familiar with Shakespeare, this is such a great sort of place to... Yeah, this is Start, this is like chill, right? Because there's a lot of kind of really highly acclaimed Shakespeare movie adaptations, but like most of them tend to be tragedies. You know, obviously Romeo plus Juliet uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio is like an amazing film. But um, this movie is literally, you can just watch it on the same level as Mamma Mia. Very, very easy to watch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kenneth Branagh is like, just kind of chill, go down his spine somewhere. <laughs> just sat up straight, like what yeah it's great great fun everyone is really attractive very enjoyable so next week we are going to be doing the Sydney Poitier film a patch of blue 
which was uh, another listener request, which I have never seen, so I'm very excited to check this one out. Uh, I watched a number of Sidney Poitier films last year. They were a bunch on the Criterion channel, so I kind of blew through a bunch of them because I wasn't familiar with his work, and I thought they were really interesting. He's a great actor, obviously, but this one will be new to me, so this will be cool. And if you want to investigate our variety of commentaries and bonus episodes, they are available at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes, where I will be discussing costume design on film. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.